After the Russo-Japanese War and subsequent World War I, Japan realized the volatile nature of biological weaponry and made a mad dash to harness their power, both offensively and defensively. By the time the mid-1930s rolled around and World War I was looming, Japan, and specifically one man named Shiro Ishii, had already been hard at work testing chemical and biological weapons on innocent people. It was a means to an end, one that was entirely unjustified by its conclusion. The atrocities committed by Shiro Ishii boggle the mind, and for that reason, listener discretion is advised. Should we? We should probably get this episode going because apparently, according to a TikTok TikTok time traveler, world's gonna end today. Yes. So, <laughs> so welcome our new alien overlords. Yes. Apparently, we're gonna be ruled by aliens. It, and it, it's already like the twenty fourth in Australia. Mm. So <laughs> it's it's coming any minute now. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say what time zone do aliens operate by are they on like central are they on pacific that's always the question i ask i'm like it's already this date in australia nothing's happened yet so when is it coming i'd be so pissed if i spent the last day on earth literally working yeah right <laughs> so i just clocked in at a, a nine to five and, and just like, did my job do it at the beginning of my shift right they couldn't do it right when I'm pouring my first coffee so I don't have to do this. <laughs> Get me out of work. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gems of History podcast. Apparently, you're Apocalypse Radio because the alien overlords are coming. Welcome. Oh, well, if you want to continue listening to us, we'll just grab big megaphones and <laughs> we'll go to the town square. We'll scream from the QZ zones. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I'm your host, Jacob Shop, and the other person that you hear talking, that's Evan Roosh, my co-host. Howdy, howdy. howdy. <laughs> it's been a few weeks. Since <laughs> How have you been, Evan? No, doing doing pretty well. We have a topic today that you know, it's the first time that we had to do a listener discretion is advised. Yeah. And it's for a different reason. It's probably the first time I've ever gotten like truly sad when researching a topic. It's and we've rough. covered some pretty crazy acts and stories throughout history but this one this one's just it's just deeply sad deeply first sad. listener discretion warning on our first listener selected episode <laughs> that is actually one of the funniest things. like all right shout out the patreon subscribers <laughs> yes you make you we love you all you are amazing but you made me sad this week <laughs> but before we get into the episode evan what's new in your life what what have you been watching what have you been up to I have been watching a lot of the NCAA basketball tournament. Go Marquette. Ooh. But I've also, yeah, right. That's a bummer. I've also been watching, uh, I have to admit, I am a reality TV junkie now. Okay. So I've been watching a lot of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Ooh, all right. In this season, I've just, I've just, I can feel all like the skip 30 seconds buttons <laughs> being pressed. But this season, uh, the guy on it is just kind of, kind of funny and, this past week was the uh, one that he gets to have sex Ooh. with like three different people. <laughs> I'm he, sure that helps. Yeah. And spoilers. He said that he wasn't going to do that. 
wasn't going to have sex with anyone, but then he had sex with everyone. Oh my gosh, that doesn't complicate the show, I'm sure. Yeah, and watching it with just a glass full of wine. It's like the opposite. <laughs> it's like a classic, uh, the classic meme during football season is, can't believe that quarterback couldn't make that throw, or like I could have made that throw as I'm sitting with probably my belly out eating wings covered yeah. in grease. But in this case with The Bachelor, it's sipping wine and like <laughs> Make, judging these people. <laughs> judging their relationship choices. Yeah. You live a, a very, you have a weird dichotomy in your life where you go and watch The Bachelor with wine and then you come on this podcast and talk about war atrocities. <laughs> I honestly thought about that before. Or I've thought about this before. I think I just have a million interests. So it's kind of yeah. that jack of all trades, master of none. That, I just like think a lot of things are cool. But yeah. I think that's me too. Like I'm Oh yeah. I always get like interested in a lot of things and then I never get really good at one of them. <laughs> so like during COVID when uh I was like, I'm really gonna get into growing my own cilantro <laughs> and my own tomatoes. <laughs> and uh, I had a uh um the Japanese bonsai tree. tree, bonsai tree as well. All of them died. On theme for today. <laughs> Very on theme, yes. <laughs> but how about you? You can't get out of the where are you up to? Uh, what am I up to? Huh? I just did a cribbage tournament with my father this past weekend. We got second place by literally one point. They the so the way this for anyone that knows what cribbage is, if if you don't know, if you lose by a certain amount of points, it's called getting skunked, and in this tournament, you got an extra score if you skunked the team you played. And the team that beat us skunked their last game by one point. No. And beat us by, by that one point. So we got second. But, I mean, I wasn't expecting to win. But we got second, and I'm very happy with that. So that was cool. I mean, that is pretty incredible. I did love your picture on Twitter, at Jacob from Wisco. The, the amount of dollars that you held up <laughs> no. with your father. It was... I want that to be an independent, like an indie rock album cover. <laughs> I want it so yeah, bad. I want it yesterday. <laughs> the band name is like Jelly Bean Forest. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. In our album, the cribbage. The cribbage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that was fun. Uh, other than that, I haven't really been doing too much other than just filling my brain with bad stuff for this week. But yeah, I can't wait for the five minutes after we get done recording where all of the memory of the research and the talking just gets flushed out <laughs> just decompress yeah and but, then i don't have to remember this but as we mentioned earlier this is our first listener chosen episode it was chosen by one of our patrons uh i believe it was jeff that suggested this topic for us so thank you, Jeff, for the suggestion. Also, also uh, you're a deviant, and <laughs> you need to get other hobbies to look into, because this is rough. <laughs> and those other hobbies should be following our YouTube and watching <laughs> Jacob on the YouTube. <laughs> Where I also talk about atrocities. Yep. Uh, but yes, as you've probably seen by now by looking at the title of this episode, we are going to be talking about Unit 731 which, if you are unaware, is a Japanese biological and chemical weapons and experimentation testing unit that went on during World War II. It's, uh, it was described as worse than the Nazi concentration camps, which is saying a lot. Yeah, that is absolutely saying a lot. And the horrors of both and how they were happening at the same time, very... It's just... 
and you don't really we don't really hear about unit 731 like i didn't really know much about it till we started doing research on it so it just even opens up my mind to what other unreal atrocities do we not know yeah. about that were able to get covered up that did just get completely swept under the rug. Yeah, I saw a comment on one of the YouTube videos, and it was it, someone just said, "Man, this time period just had like a bunch of literal supervillains running around." And I mean, not that there isn't some running around right now, yeah. but like, there's a lot of bad stuff that happened in this little fifteen-year gap of history. I also thought about this as well, doing research on this. Wonder a hundred years from now, who are we going to say were the supervillains of the? 2000s like the supervillains of the 1900s you got your key players yeah you got your adolf you have your mussolini you have your basically the entire ussr (laughs) (laughs) i mean i can think of two that are going on right now that are gonna definitely be on that list and they're both they're both in that same area of the world if you were a betting man and you were looking to place a future (laughs) that would be the time putin and Whoever ends up being in charge of North Korea for the next like fifty years, whether that oh, be Kim yeah. Jong Un or whoever takes over after him, if his sister takes over, it's going to get rough, like even more rough. Yeah, so, I've heard that she is vicious. Yeah, none of them are good. Well, but yeah, that's true. That is not why we're, what we're here to talk about today. So, without further ado, should we jump right into this? This is going to be less lighthearted than most of our episodes because we like to try and keep it fun and entertaining around here but just a heads up this one's gonna be kind of tough to riff on yeah a heads up there's not gonna be a whole lot of ha-has or hee-hees i mean there'll be a couple in the in this preamble stuff maybe but after that it's gonna be buckle up buckle up for sure (laughs) so with a story like this it's kind of hard to figure out where to begin because you want to try and give the context to See, how did we get to this point, you know? For that, we kind of have to go back a little bit, because by the 20th century, biological warfare really wasn't anything new. In the 14th century, we saw armies flinging plague-infected corpses over the walls of besieged cities, and then by the time British and American soldiers arrived in the New World, smallpox was already tearing through the Native American population, whether that was intentional or not. Right, Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan were big advocates of slinging the old infected dead body over the walls, which is just, that's just gross. Yeah, I mean, like on a catapult, like you have to hear the, like the trebuchet noise. Yeah. And then it's just a body with flies around it. And that's how the plague spread. Yay. Yay. When more modern times rolled around, countries realized the need to develop ways to harness more concentrated forms of chemical and biological weapons to make their enemies submit more effectively. And World War I saw the real introduction of devastating chemical weapons and newly designed gas masks, albeit not entirely effective, against the chlorine and mustard gases that were littering the battlefields. But one country that was ahead of all the others at protecting their people from these types of attacks was Japan. Japan had been engaged in nearly constant fighting from the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War in 1904, and they quickly realized that they needed to make changes if they wanted to be more successful in their campaigns, specifically advances in the medical department. 
high numbers of men in the Japanese army were being taken out by disease prior to the 1900s, and the Japanese military steeled their resolve to figure out a way to stop the casualties from diseases. Outside of battle, Japanese scientists were making great strides in the field of preventive medicines, for example, finding the causes of diseases like dysentery. And that single-minded effort reformed military medicine, sending Japan leaps and bounds ahead of all the other countries in the fight against biological warfare. Yeah, it's a little-known fact that during wartime, the biggest killer is actually diseases and malnutrition and not being able to get your body right. Like, even our episode about Hannibal and his trek through the mountains in Carthage, a lot of his troops died before even swinging a sword at a Roman. Right, so in the Japanese mind here, this research was absolutely critical. Yeah, but and as we'll get to it, the research methods, yeah, questionable, <laughs> a little questionable. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, especially World War One, where you had basically trench warfare the entire time. People were getting sick and dying in the trenches just because they were not getting enough food, or they mm -hmm. sustained like a minor injury that got infected, and then there's rats everywhere. So it's yeah, it's a mess. World War One had to be. No color in the sky. I always picture when I think of World War One, it's literally just gray because you're sitting there in a trench. There's rats. You probably have trench foot. So, like, your foot's about to fall off yeah. because it's so icky. You're waiting for to either charge at the other line and get gunned down by machine guns or get charged at and have to gun people down with machine guns or see a tank. I was the first or time get ever. mustard gas. Yeah. <laughs> Or just you're just getting shelled constantly. Yeah, it's uh, rough. Rough time to be a, a soldier. And they didn't even have headphones that can block out noise. They didn't have Bose headphones. Yeah, unbelievable. Like, how are they even supposed to do it? And then you're, the guy next to you, when your foot falls off from trench foot, it's like, is anyone else going to eat, eat that? that? <laughs> <laughs> He's licking his chops just so that, like, where do you get barbecue sauce? <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. We did squeeze in a haha. -ha. Hey, we'll, we'll get a few in here. So one of Japan's biggest problems in the Russo-Japanese War was, surprisingly, scurvy, which affected 22% of the Japanese army at one point in the war. The field hospitals were short on supplies and hospital space for the sick, not to mention the fact that the buildings that were being used to house the sick weren't well-equipped in the first place. But Japanese military scientists developed portable water testing kits to tests for poisoned water wells, and manufactured a pill to deal with bacteria ingestion. In the words of one American military doctor named Louis, Louis, Louis? Louis Livingston Seaman, quote, The American army can never hope to emulate the Japanese until the time shall have arrived when, through the reorganization of its medical department, the surgeon shall have executive instead of merely advisory privileges in the matters of hygiene and sanitation in barrack and field, and until the line officer shall display the same courtesy and respect to the medical expert as does his Japanese brother-in-arms. So basically listen to your doctors, and yeah. we could maybe combat this vicious disease running through the ranks. And this guy literally went to Japanese fields when they were fighting to see their methods, to see like how they're getting so far ahead. And he's like, unless you guys start doing what they're doing and letting the doctors just make decisions instead of just advising on decisions, things aren't going to change. I think that's one of the tropes that always ring true when it comes to, like, I would probably say just military at this time. I mean, there's 
you really don't take advice. Like generals don't take advice unless it's very much dire, which in this case, like very, very dire. People are dying from scurvy. It is interesting though that Jap the Japanese were the first ones to start changing that meta because right, you're right. coming from a samurai and shogun era where there was like a literal lord you had to listen to. And now they're like, you got to listen to these other guys. So it's kind of crazy to see that immediate shift in dynamic between who's in charge and who's getting the say in what scenarios. Right. So at this point, it was clear that Japan had the tactical advantage in military medicine. And this fanatic push for medical reform in the military was eventually realized by a young man named Shiro Ishii. I've seen it both ways with it uh, being Ishii Shiro and Shiro Ishii, but Shiro Ishii is easier for my mouth to say, so I'm going to be going with Shiro Ishii. I don't know which one's technically correct, but that's what we're going to go with for this episode. So Shiro Ishii was born in June of 1892 to a wealthy family in a city known as Shibayama. His family was the largest landowner in that area, and they exercised feudal control over the villagers in said area. Since he was from the upper crust, Ishii attended prestigious primary schools and was said to have been his teacher's favorite. He early on displayed a photographic memory and high-level intellect, but his classmates sometimes said that he was arrogant and abrasive. Yeah, that's the kind of the classic thing with genius. Yeah. Like even Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, also got picked on because he was so not... Well, he did get picked he did on. He picked on, yeah. I don't know if like in this case it was picked on, but you get pointed out as different very quickly. And, but in this case, it kind of just sounds like Ishii was a... Kind dick. of a dick. <laughs> I don't think put him it, on the put him on the wall of dicks of history. Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily that he was socially awkward. I think he just knew he was smarter than other people. Ah, yeah. Not much else is known about his childhood and early teens, but he ended up becoming a tall, slim man with glasses and joined the military at an early age. And when I say tall, he was around six feet tall, which for a Japanese person is pretty. Pretty much uh, ahead above other people. Oh, especially for this time where the average height just across the world is like five four. Yeah, so he he def he literally was ahead above the competition. Yeah, and then he invented the slam dunk. <laughs> <laughs> Shiro Ishii moved quickly into one of the most prestigious schools in Japan, Kyoto Imperial University, and began his study of military medicine. According to his colleagues at this school, he was pretty indifferent towards the fellow students, but was intently obedient to any of his superiors. Ishii would apparently stay after other students and work late in the labs, but he would use other students' equipment and then he would never clean it up. He also apparently kept bacteria in petri dishes as a kind of pet. <laughs> Interesting lifestyle choices. I mean, I'm looking at Zuki right now, literally just sleeping with a Benabone and truly in her mouth and we have different definitions of pets yeah sir <laughs> i wonder if he named all of these bacteria slides that he had oh and here's here's maybe he had a zuki who knows I, he could have he could have had an itachi too oh, just my itachi, dog. yeah that's right and then he throws in like something just so silly like paul a, yeah right <laughs> like some western american name like he he george here's paul the penicillin it's penicillin a bacteria? I Here's don't know. George the gangrene. <laughs> Gary was right there. I'm sorry for the listeners. 
Undeterred by his fellow students' ire of him, Ishii graduated in 1920, and in the same year, he married the university president's daughter. Not bad. I mean, he was a catch. That Very is a smart, smart dunk. Six foot. Yeah. yeah. And he had this, apparently he had like a deep very compelling voice when he talked as a so, love of animals like the bacteria <laughs> uh, well you no know. oh. <laughs> i mean he does he does love animals but he loves using them for other things yes yes <laughs> after college shiro ishii was commissioned in the japanese army as a military surgeon and impressed he impressed his superiors enough in his first couple years that he was able to return to kyoto imperial to pursue postgraduate medical studies in 1924 by the time he turned 35 in 1927, he had received his PhD in microbiology. The same year, he stumbled upon an article about the Geneva Convention of 1925, in which the use of biological warfare was banned in most countries. And he was like, oh, come on! <laughs> My whole life's work already! Yeah. <laughs> he took each one of the bacterias and apologized personally, like, you could have been so more. This is that meme of the giant like soldier and the little guy on, oh, on the yeah. ground. And the <laughs> giant soldier is the Geneva Convention. And here's yeah. Shiro Ishii. <laughs> but as he looked at this article, he realized that Japan had only signed but never ratified the treaty. This discovery led him to understand that Japan did not want to agree to the ban because they saw the potential for biological weapons in the field. In their eyes, if it had been banned, it must have been effective. That is very, I mean, it's a very crazy mindset in terms of how much advancement in technology Japan had. Like, they were, the last shogun died in 1868. Yeah. And so we're talking in just 60 years there at the very top of the medical field in terms of military actions, right? Like we mentioned before, they're starting to listen to surgeons. And now they're developing weapons to use germs yeah. and like actual like biohazard material. The shift in, I guess, mindset was just so abrupt when the Meiji era took over, uh, which was the era after the Tokugawa shogunate. But the amount that they advanced in 60 years is, well, it's one why they were able to have such a advanced empire, but also kind of led to their downfall, too. It is, it is truly insane how quickly they adapted into the modern world. Right. They were probably like, finally. <laughs> yeah. So the next couple of years saw Ishii traveling through Europe and the U.S. to study the bacteriological weapons that they were using in World War I, which pushed his beliefs even further that Japan needed a biological and chemical warfare program. And one of the articles that I read from allthatsinteresting.com kind of made a good point here that his superiors probably granted him the official travel license or whatever to go and study this because they were like sick of him asking to make a biological weapons program. <laughs> and they were just like, no, but you can go to the US if you want to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Get them off their backs. Yeah. Just send the problem away. So I, I should mention that one of my main sources for this episode, I found a digitized version of a master's thesis on Shiro Ishii that had a, a lot of really good information. It was from 2005, but it had a lot of very good source material stuff in it that is usually what I have to compile 
for my notes, so he kind of did it for me, but it was by a man named Gregory Dean Bird. So, Gregory, if you're listening, thank you for letting me use your master's thesis for my podcast. And if you're listening, caca! <laughs> what? His last name's Bird. Ah, totally. Whoop! It's the, it went right over my head. Like we said before, we're going to try to mix in the ha-has. We have to mix in the cacas. Right as well. over my head like a bird. <laughs> we run a silly show. <laughs> we I do. Lo- I love this so much. After his traveling and upon his return back to Japan, Shiro Ishii met another man who would help push his ideals forward. And that man's name was Chika... Oh, I knew I was going to mess that up. Chikahiko Koizumi. Koizumi was a military officer in World War I who helped to lead chemical warfare research and by 1930 was a colonel and a scientist at Tokyo Army Medical College. Koizumi also had attempts to convince the superiors that there was a chemical warfare program needed in the early 1920s, but all of those efforts failed and Koizumi realized that if he allied with the brilliant mind of Shiro Ishii, perhaps he could make more ground with the higher-ups. And it makes sense, like you may be thinking right now, like why are they trying to push for this so much? All these countries pretty much agreed to not use this type of warfare warfare anymore. But notoriously, people go back on their word, right? So they're just really trying to make sure that, like in their minds, they're doing this for the betterment of their country. They're doing it for the betterment of the military to save their own like soldiers' lives in a way if they can end a war through biological methods. Right, and a lot of it at the beginning was defensive-minded, so... Right, I mean, in a way, do you... Obviously, I'm not comparing it directly to the Manhattan Project, but you kind of see some similarities, of course not in the actions and the research methods, but the reason why the Manhattan Project was such an emphasis is to develop a weapon... That can be used so our own soldiers don't have to die. So they, I, in my opinion, I think they might have had a similar mindset. Oh, yeah. I think everyone... And again, their methods were ass, and they are all the worst people, some of the worst people of all time. I I just think around this time, everyone realized that all of the technology was moving forward so quickly that Mm -hmm. everyone was in a mad dash to try and get whatever the next biggest thing was going to be that could prevent bloodshed and get them it could cause enough of a dilemma for another country that they just don't even want to fight you know what i mean right so i think that's kind of where yeah the atomic bomb and this sentiment for biological weapons came from right it's definitely like the arms race is nuts like we mentioned japan had in 60 years had all this advancement but weaponry during between I believe it really is like 1880 or basically the American Civil War till World War II. It went from people lining up with muskets and shooting in lines to literally a bomb that can erase someone's existence. Yeah. So it's just like, to your point, the technological advancements, particularly in war, is just unreal for a well, solid 80 years. Just from World War I to World War II, like World War I was the first time anyone used a shotgun. Yeah, so in trenches, yeah, it, that was that was crazy, like crazy technology at the time, and then it advanced so fast after that. I'm pretty sure shotguns were even banned at one. Germany point. tried to get them banned because yeah. they said they were causing too much damage to people. Yeah, so yeah, it was rough. 
So once the two are teamed up, Koizumi and Shiro Ishii use their connections, such as Koizumi's relationship with the future Prime Minister of Japan, Hideki Tojo, to gather support within scientific circles for their biological warfare program. And it worked. According to Daniel Berenblatt in his book A Plague Upon Humanity, the, history, the Hidden History of Japan's Biological Warfare Program, quote, By the mid-1930s, Japan was manufacturing enormous quantities of poison gas bombs, including shells of chlorine, phosgene, and mustard gas. Koizumi was made the dean of Tokyo Army Medical College. In 1934, he became the Army Surgeon General. And in 1936, he was appointed Japan's Minister of Health. End quote. Very powerful person. Yeah. By the, by the end of, not even by the 40s, he's already the Minister of Health in Japan. Not a bad come up. Not at all. And having these newfound connections was huge for none other than Shiro Ishii who himself, by 1929, had already been promoted to the rank of major and was appointed chair of a new department of immunology at Tokyo Army Medical College. In short order, Koizumi helped Ishii get the resources he needed to build a biological warfare program for the army. Ishii then began his days by giving lectures to students, dealing with administrative matters in the afternoon, all while, according to once again Berenblatt, quote, covertly researching biological warfare in the evening hours in the lab space, end quote. It's like, just play COD. <laughs> have normal the, hobbies. Have normal hobbies. <laughs> Be a teacher and nothing else. <laughs> and nothing else, yes. Literally stick to your day job. Yeah. His students apparently liked him. Uh, they said that they were won over by his charisma and his imposing deep voice. There's nothing more, I guess, charismatic than, like, hey... We're going to learn about some germs. <laughs> the bank that's, that's how he sounded. Yeah, exactly. he, he sounded like he was a 78-year-old leather salesman from Arizona. <laughs> smoke smoke scars all over his face. He looked, oh, absolutely. His face looks like Kramer's when he's smoking all the cigars in that <laughs> Seinfeld episode. At this time, Shiro Ishii began to study bubonic plague, cholera, typhoid, and anthrax, mostly for defensive purposes, such as vaccines, and to prep for any enemy attacks. At this point, Japan's chemical and biological weapons development was on track with the Western powers. But soon after his testing began, an event transpired that sh gave Shiro Ishii an unprecedented opportunity to conduct his, exp to conduct his experiments. Seeking raw materials, Japan invaded a Chinese-controlled section of mainland Asia known as Manchuria in 1931 and began a Pacific conflict years before World War II would even begin. And Evan is going to tell us a little bit more on how that all went down. Yeah, it's very interesting that before the war, the war to end all wars, part two, yes. <laughs> Japan was already trying to catch, like, just get into the mix and expand their territories and it really was when we think about the reasoning right the why it really was like you mentioned because of natural resources it's why they inv <clears throat> it's why they invaded manchuria would proceed to invade china why they invaded and conquered a majority of indonesia australia all those different korea, islands yeah. korea and Japan's history, they've always, they've attempted to conquer these lands before, right? Like during our 
episodes during our series about the Sengoku Hide, we talked about how they invaded Korea during the samurai era. Yep. And so, like, they're constantly trying to, not, I shouldn't say constantly, but they are working to expand their territory past just the three islands. And at, right after the Meiji Restoration happens, they're like mm-hmm. I said, they're constantly fighting from the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War. Like they went from that directly into World War One, and then almost directly into this occupation of Manchuria and in, into World War Two. So for that almost fifty-year period, they're just constantly at war with someone. It's like the Cold War came about, and they're like, "We are good. Yeah. We don't want. We want to stay very cold in this right. one. We're just gonna make some cars. We're gonna make some great tech." Like technology, you guys can handle this. It helped one. that America was like, we're going to take this land over for a little bit and keep you guys in check. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> we blew it up. Now we're going to fix it. But for much of the early 20th century, Japan had effective control of Manchuria, even though they hadn't invaded yet. And Manchuria, I guess we didn't really mention this. Oh, Manchuria yeah. is like just north of China on the, the sea border with where Japan would enter the mainland. So it was controlled by China, and then Japan came in, took it over. Mm-hmm. So they weren't technically in charge yet, but they essentially supported the Chinese warlord of the area, Zhang Zhoulin. And through that, we're already starting to form this type of puppet government, but a serious conflict was developing in the area because Manchuria, of course, was a majority of Chinese citizens and Japanese citizens and military personnel were slowly starting to move in more and more and more. And Chinese citizens formed, excuse me, Chinese citizens felt a lot of neglection when it came to receiving resources. I mean, these different Chinese military personnel are moving in, taking natural resources away from their area. And so resentment is starting to build and eventually gets to mainland China, where in, or shouldn't say mainland China, but the rest of China. And in an attempt to claim their independence back or assert their dominance in the area, the Chinese started to build a series of railroads that would encircle the Japanese, mostly Japanese controlled areas of Manchuria and would conclude at a port called Zhang. Zhu Liang. Nice. Uh, your boy came to play today. <laughs> I, that was good. In the summer of 1931, the friction of all this built-up resentment of just they're trying to block the Chinese are trying to blockade the Japanese in a way in the area. All the friction became or resulted in minor incidents, and those in control of the main body of Japanese forces in Manchuria believed that the time had come to stop compromising, and to start doing a little invading. And on the night of September 19th, 1931, claiming that the Chinese had blown up part of a railroad track on the south part of Manchuria, the Japanese seized Shenyang. Facing little resistance from the Chinese nationalist forces, the Japanese established the new puppet state of Manchukuo in 1932, and installed the former king, I forgot to check the pronunciation on that, the Q-I-N-G, but I'm going to go with... Oh, Qin. Thank you. Yeah. The Qin Emperor Pu Yi as its titular head. Two years later, in the spring of 1934, a pronouncement from Tokyo, in effect, declared all China to be a Japanese preserve in which no power could take important action without... Japanese governmental consent. 
And at the time Japan enters into China and Manchuria, China's kind of fighting a civil war at the same mm-hmm. time because there's the communists that are trying to take over the country. And then there's also the more, I don't know if you want to call them democratic, led by uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Yep. And so they're, they're fighting too. And the, the communist part is more in the north section of China where Japan's kind of taken over now. And so at first, Chiang Kai-shek's kind of just letting him run through the country because he's they're taking out the communists. So. Right, and we see this later when Japan goes into the more southern parts of China. The communist forces were just like, go for it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's on you. I mean, they did establish a united front eventually to help drive them out, but a lot of it was like, you could just catch ricochet bullets or yeah. just like friendly fire, quote unquote, and you just be shooting at other, I guess I would say you're, just a different political party. I think if Japan wasn't as brutal as they were when they entered into China, I think they could have converted an entire half of the country into fight, fighting with them. Right. If they were simply, you know what? We want to partner with this political party. Yeah. They could, like you mentioned, have 50%. Then we could have had Japan and the Communist Party against Chiang Kai-shek and uh, like United Nations help or League of Nations help. Right. So. That would have been interesting. Yeah. It is also interesting, in addition to the civil war that had been going on for, I believe it's decades at this point, the Chinese government and the Chinese people, like we mentioned with the Qin Dynasty, I mean, this is after the Boxer Rebellion. This is after the opioid wars, where basically all the European nations were like, we're actually going to just take all of your cit- a majority of your citizens and a healthy chunk of your citizens <laughs> in major cities and get them addicted to opioids. And then the government said, wait, we don't want that. And then the European powers said, but you're going to do it. And then the CIA saw that like 70 years later. And took a, yeah, took a page out of their book. In 1935, the Japanese forced the withdrawal from eBay and Shahar now part of Inner Mongolia, of any officials and armed Chinese forces that might prove unfriendly to Japanese government and Japanese military personnel. These territories passed partly into Japanese control. Nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek. Oh, thank you, Chiang Kai-shek, did not offer open opposition, preferring instead to pursue his campaign against Chinese communist forces, like we talked about. In December 1936, in what came to be known as the Jian Incident, Chang was seized by forces under the command of his own generals and compelled to ally with the communists in a united front in a united front against Japan. This is two kids on the playground that have to get corralled <laughs> by a teacher and then yeah. make up. <laughs> make up and <laughs> pick on the other kids. You guys They're are kids. on the same team here. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like two fourth graders being like, you have to come together to stand up against like the much better equipped eighth grader. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also funny because I believe that after he was reasoned with to participate more like from his generals he had all those generals hung oh yeah i believe i saw that i can't confirm it they but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that's what happens he's like all right you guys make good points but i'm in charge give me those next <laughs> what proved to be a life and death struggle soon broke out between china and japan the opening engagement was a minor clash between chinese and japanese troops at the marco polo bridge not far from modern-day Beijing. The Japanese came to feel that Chiang and that Cheng and the nationalist government would not yield 
to Japanese wishes and must be eliminated. To the Japanese, the rising tide of this nationalistic motivation, this nationalistic mindset in China was directly based towards them. So they're starting to just realize, oh, the reason why this entire country is banding together is because of us. We need to fully wipe out everyone because no one's going to trust us. It is hilarious that nationalism comes back to bite them in the ass because right. that's, in, that's Japan's entire identity right now. Is they're finally a unified single country and now they're, as a united country, invading another place and trying to expand. And that whole reason for that was because of this severe nationalist sentiment in Japan. Yes, yes. Despite this new combination of nationalistic and communist forces joining together to fight off a common enemy, within two years, so from 1937 to 1939, Japan obtained possession of a majority of the ports in China, a majority of the chief cities, and a larger part of the railways on the eastern side of China. So basically, Japan has control of the entire eastern seaboard, if I'm not mistaken, as well as a huge chunk of territory going into, I would probably say, a quarter way through modern-day China, which China's a huge country. That's a ton of land. Yeah, they took Shanghai pretty quick once they invaded and then just kept moving inward. Mm -hmm. After a lot of fierce fighting, the Chinese armies were driven out of the Shanghai area by the middle of November. Nanking, the nationalist capital, fell in mid-December 1937, and the liquidation of that city and its inhabitants became known as the Nanjing Massacre, or the Rape of Nanjing. During this massacre, as many as 300,000 Chinese civilians and surrendered troops were killed. In addition, tens of thousands of women were raped on the direct orders of Japanese commander Matsui Iwani. Yeah, this is a uh, this is another thing that we could do an entire episode on if we wanted to stick with this very rough theme that we have going here. Yeah. Um but there are plenty of books. Like there's a book I believe that is taken first-hand accounts and done like a minute by minute almost radio blotter account of mm. everything that happened during this and it is probably one of the roughest things that I've ever read about. It's three, like over three hundred thousand people. It's three. It's three months of like a barbaric sacking of a city. Yes, it's very, yeah. very bad. Yeah, that is just so like the amount of like sheer terror that just civilians who wanted nothing to do, I'm sure, with the war, like just they weren't combatants, they weren't participants, and it happened to them, and that's. That's one of the worst, I think, stories of history. And it sucks, too, because the, the soldiers were the ones that were the true targets for the Japanese, but the soldiers were shucking off of their uniforms and putting on civilian clothes. Mm -hmm. So then the Japanese were dragging out random groups of civilians and saying, you guys are soldiers, but they probably weren't. Right. So they're just executing all of these innocent people. Mm -hmm. Despite all of this, the Chinese forces did not yield, and the war prolonged far beyond Japan's expectations. China's leadership migrated to the far west, to Sichuan and Yunnan. Unoccupied China prepared for a prolonged resistance. So if you remember our episode from last week, the way that Rome handled the invaders was, let's try to drag this out as long as we can. And I won't go into 
too much more of the Sino-Japanese, the second Sino-Japanese war, because we have a lot of other stuff to cover. But to summarize it, basically, China just kept on playing that long game. Because Japan, it's still, it's a huge military, but still only has a limited number of inhabitants, right? So as soon as the U.S. got involved in the Pacific, they had to take a, ma- a vast majority of their troops in China out. So that yielded ground. And then the U.S. and other allied forces got China the weapons that they actually needed to stand up to this advanced military. Because China was using extremely outdated weaponry. And, I mean, going, it's like going up against... It's bringing a knife to a gunfight, yeah. essentially. And then China became communist China. <laughs> and then, yes, and long Yay. story short, China became the China of today. Good job, USA. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's a little information on why tensions were high between the Japanese and Chinese. Right, I mean, a lot of tensions that... Well, we'll talk about it later in the... Yeah, we'll, we'll get into what that all led to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, one thing that that did lead to was a majority of the Japanese viewed anyone outside of Japan as inferior, and so a new stomping ground in the enemy territory was ideal for someone like our main man, Shiro Ishii. In his mind, his tests could now go as far and be as brutal as he wanted to. And starting in 1932, Ishii was given charge of a testing and production facility that at the time was known as the Anti-Epidemic Water Supply and Purification Bureau. That is such a wild, like, oh no, we're just fixing the water. Yeah, nothing. Nothing. Really going on here, no. Just, it sounds like an offshore bank. You know how, like, (laughs) how people, like, launder money. I ask you, you know how people launder uh, money all the time <laughs> <laughs> or set up like offshore accounts. It sounds like such a fake company yeah, 100%. or a fake division to well, cover up the disgusting things that they do. Yeah. That, that's like uh there is an, a mercenary group that was based out of South Africa. I think it was. And they called themselves executive outcomes. Oh and yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> are you here to do my taxes? Yeah, or right? are you what, here what to... do you guys do? Yeah. What's your mission statement? So this Manchurian-located facility was Shiroishi's first, but he soon realized that he would need to move to a more adequate campus. So he moved to a location known as Bayanhe and gave a three-day warning to everyone living there to grab their things and get out. And when that three days had passed, Ishii ordered everyone left in the village to be killed and the village itself burnt to the ground. Then he put up a, I believe it was two-story structure there, and this was the beginning of Ishii's true descent into barbarity. They crammed up to 1,000 prisoners, from guerrilla fighters to innocent people who just got rounded up, and put them all in this two-story building. These people would have blood drawn every three to five days until they were too weak to be of use, and then they would be killed off with poison. Most reports say that the maximum life expectancy at this location known as the Zhangma Fortress, was one month. One month life expectancy at this building. Like that is At most. At most, yeah. And yeah, when they took blood, they took blood, blood. Like yeah. They took all of your blood. Yeah, like what weakens you enough in less than a month to just kill you off. Yeah, it's not, not good. Right, and when you lose that amount of blood, it, you're very much, you're more susceptible to disease and... Basically anything else. You can die just trying to climb the stairs too fast. 
Japanese elite military police, known as the Kenpaite, took on a new role in Japanese-occupied Manchuria and became a human material collection agency. Similar to the Nazis referring to the Jews and quote-unquote undesirables as vermin or rats, the Japanese called their prisoners and test subjects maruda, or logs in English. And interesting point here uh, that some of you might appreciate, uh, there's an, a very big anime called My Hero Academia, hmm. and the writer actually had a scientist who experimented on humans and made them into these big monsters. His name was Baruda. Oh, really? <laughs> and a bunch of people, when they realized that, when it got to that chapter in the manga, were like, oh, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he, had, he like, had to make a public apology and stuff. But yeah, this... People are finally starting to realize more about what happened in Unit 731, and that was not a great choice. Right, yeah. So this labeling of their prisoners helped those participating in Unit 731 projects to come to terms with that they, what they were doing and to further dehumanize these prisoners who they already viewed as inferior to begin with. According to one survivor from a Japanese prison camp, quote, I became a 70-pound living skeleton. They gave us shots and sprays in the face. End quote. But since these weren't people, a 70-pound living skeleton wasn't important. And eventually, a prison uprising did allow some prisoners to escape and forced Zhongma Fortress to shut down. But this just allowed Shiro Ishii to perfect his visions. They moved a short distance away from Beiyinhe to just outside of a nearby city known as Harbin, and Ishii instructed his forces to build an expanded and self-sufficient compound. This meant a new area to serve as a prison for the human test subjects, an arsenal to make the germ bombs, an airfield with its own air force, and a crematorium to dispose of the eventual human remains. Literally the worst episode of MTV Cribs of all time. Ever. <laughs> it has everything you don't want to see. Welcome to MTV Concentration Cribs. Ew. It's not good times. No. In addition, intricate germ and insect breeding facilities were constructed alongside state-of-the-art dormitories for the Japanese residents. According to Sheldon Harris in his book Factories of Death, the grounds included a large auditorium with a library and a bar, swimming pools, gardens, small bars and restaurants, warehouses, athletic fields, and a brothel to service the Japanese personnel. The children could also attend primary and secondary schools, and anyone could attend to their spiritual needs at the Shinto temple. Anyone who was Japanese, that is. Chinese, Russian, Manchu, European, and many more people got caught up in this campaign of atrocity, all the while Shiro Ishii and his family lived in a captured Russian mansion and moved around in an armor-plated limo. Yeah, the Japanese lived good at this place. Like, yeah. Say, like you mentioned, save the art dorms, an entire bar, and even a place to, like, Get right with your soul. Yeah. As you literally got done with a shift of taking imprisoned people and taking all their blood or doing some of the other egregious acts. And then just before you went to the Shinto temple, you went to the brothel that is full of sex slaves. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a parallel to the Nazis as well. I mean, at those concentration camps yep. and in the areas, like once they uh, effectively kidnapped and took all of the 
Jewish people out of cities. I mean, they moved. They truly moved into the nice places. Yeah. It, well, and the concentration camps themselves were just giant cities. Like they had yeah. stoplights and streets and shops. And it's. I don't think people really comprehend how big those places were. It was. It was literally a small town. Right. It was. It truly was a small town. Yeah. It didn't take long for things in this small town for Shiro Ishii to turn it into a human dumping ground. And this is where things are going to get truly brutal for this story. So when we were planning this, Evan texted me and said, you know, I'm actually concerned that this is going to turn into just us listing some of the worst atrocities in human history. That's where this part starts. Yeah, that's (laughs) so... An hour in, and that's when we're getting in. If you don't want to hear the specifics and just want an overview, I guess you can skip ahead a few minutes. But yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get brutal. Prisoners would be exposed to massive doses of plague, anthrax, and smallpox germs, sometimes chained to stakes in the ground next to bombs containing the diseases, and then used to track how the diseases spread. Others would be poisoned with high doses of radiation or pumped full of horse blood. Prisoners would be denied water and had their organs and blood removed to test manufactured diseases and dehydration. There are recorded instances of prisoners being vivisected alive without anesthetic because the doctors felt that waiting until their subjects died would give inconclusive results. According to one participating doctor's reports taken from the New York Times, quote, The prisoner knew that it was over for him, and so he did not struggle. However, when he picked up the scalpel, that's when he began screaming. I cut him open from chest to the stomach, and he screamed terribly, and his face was all twisted in agony. End quote. To test the effects of frostbite, prisoners would be exposed to extreme cold and sprayed with salt water until their limbs developed frostbite, having the infected limbs amputated before the patient died, and thus continuing the process. Apparently, the best method to cure frostbite was to immerse the limb in water, a bit warmer than 100 degrees, but never more than 122 degrees. Victims would be burned alive by flamethrowers, sat next to exploding bombs to study shrapnel, spun to death in centrifuges, gassed to death, buried alive, and popped like bugs in pressure chambers. Stomachs were removed to attach the esophagus straight to the intestines, and infected prisoners were locked up with healthy ones to study how quickly the diseases spread. But it didn't stay contained to the POWs within Unit 731. Yeah. I mean, the centrifuge one also, like, that was one that they used children quite a bit for as well. And it, they even make a note, like, they found out that children can last longer being spun at unbelievable speeds. And, like, the fact that these take trial and error, like, a lot of trial and error. Like you mentioned, they found out that you have to keep it no hotter. You have to come back from frostbite. You have to keep it under 122 degrees. I'm assuming that probably means that there were a hundred people at least least. that had to go through that. And I remember in one article that I read, they, it, it said that scientists and soldiers, the guards would laugh because during frostbite, they would take a like wooden rod and hit the frostbitten limb and laugh because like it sounds like a gong, or, like, or it sounds like just like a, or it sounds like wood on wood, like, right? Yeah, yeah. And just like the pure disregard for humanity here is just—it's very upsetting. It is, um, and the 
I, I didn't want to get too much into the, I guess I got pretty into the details already. So it's a little more, but with the frostbite one, they would have, if they would do it on an arm, cut off the arm, wherever the infection set in, and then they would do it on the other arm cut that arm off, go to the legs, cut those legs off until you were literally just a torso. And then they would test poisons on the torso to while you were still alive, mm-hmm. if you was, uh, survived that long, and that's how they would kill you. It's yeah. just, it truly is complete disregard for humanity in the effort of scientific study. Yeah. And it is just some of the most brutal stuff, man. If you have a dog, make sure to just go by it and start petting it. Yeah, this might be a good time to just get like one or two or seven drinks. Drinks, yeah. Yeah. Outside of Unit 731, an estimated number of more than 1,000 water wells in Manchuria were infected with typhoid germs in 1939 and 1940 alone. Deaths ranged from single deaths to devastating village-wide outbreaks. Ishii himself went into communities and gave them shots that he claimed were vaccines, but in reality were diseases like cholera, which leads to dehydration and shock. Germs were distributed into marshes, houses, and food, and food was especially effective since many people were starving in these areas of China and wouldn't deny food. Household items like pens and walking sticks would be infected with plague and left along the roads to be taken into town to spread the disease. According to reports, quote, the Ping Fang facility, which is the main base for Unit 731, alone could manufacture as much as 300 kilograms of plague bacteria, in addition to 500 to 600 kilograms of anthrax germs, 800 to 900 kilograms of typhoid, paratyphoid, or dysentery germs, or as much as 1,000 kilograms of cholera germs in a month. That's unreal numbers. It's- like a kilogram is fairly big. Truly For us insane. United States listeners, that, yeah. means, that means big. So they, they had definitely enough to do as much damage as they wanted around here. And the creativity, or I guess lack, lack of a different word, creativity, like putting in walking sticks and like someone picks it up and, yeah. and uses it. And you're literally spl- spreading the black death. <laughs> like yeah. That is your goal. Yeah. Plague bombs were developed using clay pots instead of metal containers in order to not burn up the plague-carrying fleas when the bombs dropped. In addition, planes dispersed poison gases and dropped infested wheat, rice, and cotton wads onto villages. Rats infected with the plague would be sent into towns in hopes that they would infect the local rat populations and spread the viruses. In addition to planes spreading disease and other terrors, Japan was also known for its use of balloons. In one instance, Ishii developed an answer to American uranium bombs known as the Basili bomb. The idea was that you would fill it a bomb with germs and it would be sent by balloon to the west coast of America, intended to cause mass amounts of disease and create a panic in the United States. These balloons could also carry normal bombs, though, 200 of which were eventually sent to America. The only one that did any damage, though, caused a forest fire on the West Coast and killed seven people. But according to Murray Sanders, the man put in charge of investigating the attacks, as well as one of the first to investigate Unit 731, the damage could have been much worse. He stated, quote, The only explanation I had, and still have, is that Ishii wasn't ready to deliver what he was making in Ping Fan, that he hadn't worked out the technology. 
If they had been, we were at Ishii's mercy, end quote. Right. These are super lethal and super effective methods of killing, but like the channels wouldn't work. Like, right. Imagine if they had, if they just didn't use balloons. If, like they, if got, they got like an aircraft carrier close enough to our coast to like just launch bombs, bombs. I mean, they thought of, way. they tried to do that at the end. They tried to do yeah. kamikaze planes with bombs that were infested with germs in them and they just never had the chance to because the war ended. Right. But yeah, it, it, they could have done a lot of damage on the West Coast for sure. History could have been a lot different. Yeah. Unit 731 was truly Satan's playground giving Shiro Ishii and his subordinates free reign to explore their more barbaric impulses in the name of science. According to the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, Japan oversaw around 132,000 Allied prisoners of war during the war, and around 36,000 of them died, around 27%. Comparatively, Nazi Germany held around 235,000 Allied POWs and killed a little over 9,000 of them, a small 4% in, in contrast with Japan. That is, like the difference of percentages, just, that's insane. It's almost seven times more. Yeah, yeah. that is so crazy. In a smaller population of prisoners, too. And it's two countries that are very much not caring about human life. Not at all. I think, I think that Japan just had disregard for everyone. Whereas oh, Germany yeah. just had disregard for certain groups, yep. and they knew that if they did it to, say, an American, that it would come back way harder on them. And oh Japan gosh, yeah. just didn't really care. Yeah, <laughs> so. Japan gave zero fucks. Those numbers don't even include the numbers outside of the prisoners of war. For example, those in the villages bump up the numbers considerably and make it nearly impossible to calculate a total death toll for the actions of Unit 731 operations. Some estimates put the number of total casualties as high as over 100,000 and into possibly multiple hundreds of thousands. Some scholars from China and Japan have estimated that at least 270,000 Chinese soldiers and civilians were killed by biological warfare during Japan's occupation. So if you count that number, plus the number from the uh, rape of Nanking, that's close to 600,000 people dying in unbelievably brutal ways yeah and not even just from the warfare and that that two hundred seventy thousand is just the biological warfare like, right it, right between all of the fighting it was th millions of people all the while during the war it is very likely that japanese emperor hirohito knew about the goings-on at unit 731 and the other outfits working on similar projects according to a book by herbert bix quote Imperial Headquarters Army Order Number 301, sealed by Hirohito on May 15, 1939, authorized the carrying out of field studies of chemical warfare along the Manchukuo-Soviet Manchu border. Meaning, Hirohito almost definitely knew about what Shiroishi was doing. Yeah, I don't think that there's any way that there's just not transparent communication when you're killing multiple hundreds of thousands like people know yeah like his superiors know and I, this is a point that i never i didn't make earlier but in japan's eyes they're fighting a war for a god the emperor is a god to them that is correct it is still that mindset so 
in their eyes, they're listening to a God's word to get rid of everyone else because everyone else is inferior stock. Yeah. It's a, it's a very hard mindset for people that have been so isolated to get out of. Right. And again, drawing that parallel to Nazi Germany, like Japan was doing for God and like religious beliefs, but like Germany was doing it based on the word and based on the commands of a, a political party and a madman who I guess some, you could say that they viewed him as at the time, maybe as someone superior than a human. I don't think they ever gave him like the God trope or like the God title, but I mean, Oh, and of course, like racism is in there too in both cases, but you see like it's the same actions, but done for a little bit different motivations. I guess motivational origins, one being religion, one being like political. Yeah. I mean, you're both cases though. It's like you're trying to get rid of inferior races to promote a master race right. pretty much. So yeah, it's, right. it's very rough. Yeah. It's, uh. If it looks like genocide and like sounds like genocide, it's genocide. Yeah, in both cases. And going back to Hirohito knowing about it, he had met Shiro Ishii on a couple occasions, so he mm-hmm. literally had known him personally in some capacity. So to say that he had no idea that this was going on is truly a an insane idea to me that that would be the case. Well, and plus he built a modern like for the time unbelievably modern advanced compound yeah like that i'm assuming that there was some sort of allocation of funds like yeah. that doesn't just come up overnight it probably takes like a year at least to build that's got to get signed off by the god <laughs> yeah right but western countries knew japan was up to no good in china at this point in 1943, President Franklin Roosevelt made a statement demanding the Japanese to cease their overtly harsh treatment of the Chinese, or else he would see it as an attack on the United States as well, threatening punishment if they didn't comply. Once the European theater of World War II was coming to a close and Japan knew its days were numbered, loose ends needed to be tied up. Once the word was given, Unit 731 was quickly dismantled. Files were taken and hidden away, men were sworn to an oath of silence or denial, and the remaining prisoners were killed to prevent them from speaking out about what had happened to them. The buildings were destroyed in less than 48 hours, with, most, with the most important pieces of research and equipment taken to South Korea for safekeeping. As the Japanese fled, they dumped cholera and typhoid cultures into the rivers, wells, and reservoirs, tainting the water supplies for years to come. The rest of the plague-infested rats were released as well, and estimates say that the rats alone spread plague that killed around 30,000 people in the few years following World War II. Chemical bombs, estimated from 700,000 to 2 million of them, were left behind in China as well. Those bombs corroded and leaked, leaving Manchuria a chemical waste dump that China has spent tons of effort trying to clean up. Like, to this day. Yeah. Like that's it's very hard to get rid of seven hundred thousand chemical bombs and biological bombs. Like it's it's a weird way of scorched earth tactics. It is, and it's unintentional. Well, I mean, it's intentional that they were there in the first place, but the fact that they left them there is just like they couldn't take them. They right. didn't have time to. So I mean, it wasn't even that they intentionally left them there. They would have probably taken those if they could have. Yeah, but. 
it's it's very sad that they as civilians in China for years after the war. The the war's over. Yay. But not I, I can't go get water from yeah. the well because there's typhoid or cholera or any other number of this man's biological right. you know, friends. And then there's literal bubonic plague infested yeah. rats. <laughs> yeah, the big one. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> However, in their hasty retreat to escape before the Russians arrived, some files were left behind. And when the Russians did arrive, they found blueprints for the compound and used them to build their own testing facilities back home. At the same time, American forces went to visit Ishii after the war in Tokyo. Russia had the same idea at the same time, but America got to him first. Shiro Ishii was taken to be interviewed by U.S. Army staff, at first only giving vague answers. But according to Dr. Norbert E. Fell, who conducted the interviews, quote, The increasing interest of the Soviet Union in interrogating General Ishii helped to change his attitude, end quote. And then he cooperated. Yeah, it's, you never want to deal with the Soviet Union. No. You don't Just want in to be any in, regard. You don't want to be interrogated by the Soviet Union. Especially no. after you took Manchuria, which was like something they were fighting for at some points in this history, too. So Right, and even probably had Russian POWs. Oh, for sure. A lot of Russian POWs and executed a majority of them yeah. in these ways. There was one statement that I saw where a guy who survived at, I think it was like Mukpang or something like that, I think it was called. Uh, it was one of the prison camps, but he said he walked into a room and there was a vat with like formaldehyde in it and a Russian POW was dissected through the middle and both parts of his body were just floating in this formaldehyde tank. And there was a bunch of other body parts in there with just jars with like hands and feet and they were labeled like American, Russian, Chinese. But yeah, it was, they had all sorts of POWs that they did this to. After he cooperated, a deal was made between Douglas MacArthur's staff and Shiro Ishii, granting the Japanese Mengele immunity, 250,000 yen, and protection from the Ruskies in exchange for his records from Unit 731. Ishii's daughter transcribed the interviews for her father, stating that the United States approached him with the deal, not the other way around. In their eyes, it was too important not to let this information get into Russian hands. So the U.S. did the, uh, the classic partner with the worst people of all time. They did the Operation Paperclip, yes. but Japan version. The op- I don't know the Japanese word for paperclip. Operation Tatami. It's, it's not a paperclip, but it's the first Japanese thing that came into mind. Oh, okay. Operation Mizuki. <laughs> but yeah, this it's also interesting... Japan does such an interesting job with the way they report on things. And, well, in this case, this is a special case because they did such a job to hide information about this. But I couldn't even find the names of Shiro Ishii's kids anywhere. All of the sources that I found said spouse name unknown and children's name unknown. The only name that I get is his daughter's name because they mention it in like the sources. I think her name's Namuri, and she's the one that transcribed the interviews. That's the only reason we know is her name. So it's it's funny the lengths they went to to protect even the family members' names in this case. Right, and the difference between that and, again, Nazi Germany. We know every single mother effer that did all these vile acts, like down yeah. to like the guards. And they faced their day in court also. Yeah. For the most 
part, I would say. I know we left quite a few off the hook, but... Some of them got away, yeah. Some of them started NASA. Wow. One got away, uh, namely a Joseph Mengele. Yeah. Never got him. Yeah. (laughs) But then we uh, we hired a bunch of them, too, so... Yeah. The United States quickly received 8,000 slides of tissues from from autopsies of humans and animals that were exposed to biological experiments. According to American forces, it would comprise national security to bring this data to a war crimes trial where everyone would have access to it and instead kept it close to the vest and used it for the good old USA. Another reason why the Japanese weren't taken to trial was because, according to an army memorandum from 1982, quote, no prosecutions would be pursued unless a specific incident could be identified and a single person established as the responsible party. End quote. So with such vague information on what Ishii actually did, and his unwillingness to give up the names of his cohorts, it was too hard to convincingly bring a case against him at a war crimes tribunal. According to Peter Williams and David Wallace, who wrote the book Unit 731, Japan's Biological Warfare in World War II, quote, There is no question that the American government tainted the workings for the Tokyo trial by submitting an immunity deal for the scientific data acquired by Unit 731, end quote. This is complete speculation, but do you think the reason why we weren't so tough, like the Allied forces in general weren't so tough, weren't so tough on the after-war trials was because it was primarily just the United States that handled the re- redevelopment of Japan like for example the difference between the two like Germany was split in half right yeah like Japan it was just the United States that had to take care of not take care of but like monitor the redevelopment of the country yeah I I think it is a little bit different in the fact that like Russia wasn't directly involved with it Mm -hmm. because I think if Russia had helped us to fight Japan out of China it would have been different because then we would have had to cooperate with them in some capacity. But at this point, it's already starting Cold War hostilities. Right. Because Russia's trying to get to Ishii, we're trying to get to Ishii, and we're not sharing anything that we find with the Russians. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it is a very interesting scenario. And I also, I wonder how much the decision of the atomic bombs weighed into how we treated them post-war in this scenario that was gonna be my next question for you too yeah i i think that probably came into effect a little bit because of how brutal those two bombs were and just from looking at it on an outward perspective it doesn't look good to immediately turn around and be like all right let's execute all of these war criminals now oh yeah i mean the story is probably in the international community is a lot different if it reads U.S. post the firebombings and the nuclear bombings, start executing Chinese citizens or, or excuse me, Japanese citizens and Japanese scientists. Yeah, it's doesn't look good in the international community, as well as how it would be a lot of like pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. Type deal. Later on, the United States is alleged to have used Shiro Ishii's findings to develop their own biological warfare research center. According to rumors, they used this research to create new weapons that would be used in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, which would later be almost, without a doubt, proven that we did use biological warfare in both of those cases. 
I think it definitely is one of those cases where everyone, like all the citizens, like we know that we use those weapons in those wars, yeah. right? It's pretty common knowledge, but the government will never admit it. No, absolutely not. Yeah, you'll never get a, I'm sorry, and it's like Biden laying on a tiger rug, like the South Park episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ishii's research saved the United States millions of dollars and years of work, most of which would have been an most of which would have been unethical anyways due to its attachment to human experiments. In the end, Ishii is thought to have given the United States around 80% of his research, with the other 20% gone with him. The Japanese government made it painstakingly hard to work with them in getting information, such as names of associates who worked at Unit 731, and it wasn't until 2002 that they admitted to the biological warfare and experimentation in China. Even then, the court ruled that the Chinese couldn't make damage claims due to the fact that the victims' names have been wiped away and cannot be proven. Yeah, like wiped away by who? Like the Japanese government, like yeah. Japanese officers and Japanese military If they personnel. ever even managed or cared to get their names in the first place. Right, they were just known as logs. Yeah, they were marudas. Right. Yeah, it, it, I don't think they would have even had the names on file if they wanted them. So. Right, right. One of the most mind-boggling things is the difference with which the case was handled in comparison to Germany's war crimes and their prosecution. Leading German scientists and medical doctors were taken to the Nuremberg trials for similar experiments, some of which were executed. As Gregory Dean Bird stated in his thesis on Shiro Ishii, quote, An example of hypocrisy of the Allies following World War II is that they hunted Mengele down in the jungle like the animal he was. Yet many of the researchers of Unit 731 were professors of Japanese universities and directors of Japanese medical companies, and Shiro Ishii died in American-occupied Japan 14 years after the war. End quote. Shiro Ishii died of throat cancer in 1959 at the end of a peaceful life following the war. Yeah, it's very ironic that he died of a, well, not infectious disease, but died of disease. Yeah, right. And it's just... It's so frustrating that he ne never once had to face a day of uncomfort for what he did. Right. Passed away 14 years later, probably, I'm assuming, like in a hospital bed. Yeah. With his or, family next to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With his family around him being like, oh, poor grandpa or poor. Well, and then he had a lavish funeral that was headed by his second in command at Unit yeah. 731. So it just, the just injustices. <laughs> Yeah, they one all, after another. all these people became professors and directors and leaders of their field and just did not. Yeah. Of the 5,570 Japanese prosecuted by the Allies after the war, none of them stood trial for biological warfare. The Russians did convict 12 men of their crimes against the Chinese citizens, but that's a small price. Yeah. In Germany, they were forced to confront the crimes against the Jews and other groups who their army had victimized. Germany offered a formal apology to its victims. German leaders have fallen on their knees at the former Nazi-run concentration camps in tribute to the inhumane acts committed there. Germany has been paying restitution to European Holocaust victims since 1951, totaling hundreds of billions of German marks. Germany has allowed investigators to search their wartime archives and examine its history in detail to help admit their guilt. In Germany, it's a crime to deny the death camp's existence. 
German teachers explain the Holocaust to students and express that it should never happen again. Germany allocated funds and materials to construct a Holocaust memorial museum. But Japan has done next to none of these things. Japan has consistently denied their crimes and atrocities they committed, only admitting to their crimes decades after. Even then, Japan has never offered a formal apology. Japan has paid next to nothing to the victims of their crimes. Japan has declined access to their archives and denied the existence of files for years. Those who deny their war crimes in Japan, mainly government officials, are not punished, and many of these war criminals are actually celebrated as war heroes. One shrine in particular honors over 1,000 war heroes, 14 of which are thought by the rest of the world to be top-class war criminals. Japanese textbooks don't teach about Unit 731 and their crimes in China. It would be seen as an embarrassment. Japan has been the only country in the world to refuse to cooperate with the U.S. Justice Department on war crime investigations. While the department has over 60,000 names of Germans and other European suspected war criminals, it wasn't until the past few years that the names of 3,497 members of Unit 731 were publicly known. Yeah, there's honestly just not, I mean, there's just not much to say, like, other than what you said. I mean, it's a difference. It's two very distinct journeys for Germany and Japan. Germany has admitted all wrongdoing. Germany has admitted that that was some of the most atrocious acts and just barbarism and disregard for humanity. In the history of our entire human race, like as existing humans. And Japan has basically said, we're going to wipe this away from the textbooks and never talk about it again. Yeah. And it's just very sad. Like, I don't, I just, I guess, have no words for it. There's nothing else to really say here. It, it's, it, there is something I read that said Joseph Mengele if he would have been at Unit 731, wouldn't have been a Joseph Mengele. He just would have been one of another hundred researchers. Right. Which is saying a lot. Like, Joseph Mengele is the angel of death at the Nazi concentration camps. He was Mm -hmm. a terrible human being. And to say that he would have just been another number in the ranks at Unit 731, and the fact that Japan won't own up to that fact that they ran a worse place than Auschwitz, I just... Don't know how how you go forward about with or go forward with that in any way. Like that phrase, a worse place than Auschwitz. Yeah, and we didn't know the names of the three thousand plus Unit Seven Thirty One members. The article that I read was from last year, where they said that they finally put them on display at the the Chinese run museum for Unit Seven Thirty One. How did it take that long? Right. I mean, that's. I mean, again, to speculate, do you think that's a huge reason why China doesn't really mess around with a lot of the rest of the world in terms of, I guess, I shouldn't say cooperation, but I don't know. They've been hit pretty bad in the past year. And like we're talking about the Boxer Rebellion, we can even go back to the opioid wars or opium wars and yes they happened hundreds of years ago but i mean that same psyche will like your history will always be there 
And like, don't trust foreign governments. Yeah. And then they don't do anything to make it known to other people what happened to you. So Right. Right. The atrocities committed by the Japanese in China are slowly being revealed more and more as the years go by. More books are written and new documents discovered, helping to increase our knowledge of what truly happened. Hundreds of thousands of people were affected by the biological weapons testing and experiments run by the Japanese, with perhaps millions more suffering the effects of Japan's expansions into mainland Asia. Instead of punishing those responsible, the United States worked with and paid some of the masterminds behind the misdeeds. And to this day, many Japanese people don't even know about what happened. As one person on YouTube put it, quote, I'm Japanese and I never or barely knew anything about these things. That tells me a lot about the school system. For those of you coming to Japan thinking that it's a dreamland, please acknowledge that we have several flaws in our history and tons in this era, and we are far from a perfect country. End quote. Every country has flaws, and it's each country's responsibility to hold themselves accountable for the mistakes that they make. They say history repeats itself. It's our job to make sure that this time, it doesn't. Yeah, that's extremely powerful. Just, just recognizing that the country that you live in has done some things, right? And like you mentioned with the comments of the person that lives in Japan or is Japanese and had no idea about this. I mean, if you want to just deep dive into U.S. history, there's so many things that to this day I only realize when we like do an episode on it sometimes. Right. And we've been huge his- history fans and studied history for a while, but some things... And we even see it in our country, too, that we just kind of... Oh, every country. Brush it off. But I'm just saying, like, with us, like, it's truly is every country. I mean, the Vietnam and Korean Wars that we'd mentioned earlier. I mean, Oh, yeah, with this. Nobody talks about the fact that we did that. Right. Like the My Lai Massacre and stuff. Yep. We did a lot of bad stuff, too. So, Mm -hmm. but it's just different in the case of something like this, where it's worse than the worst event in human history that is discussed openly. Yeah, right. it's it's painstaking to see that it's just so hard for people to understand it should be put in everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. But yeah, that is our episode on Unit 731. <laughs> yeah, it was a heavy, heavy you, topic today. If you made it this far, congratulations. Right, congrats. Thumbs up for the Gems of History podcast. Yep, four thumbs up. Yeah. Two from each of us. And a paw from Zuki. Oh, oh she, she looks... somehow managed to sleep through all of this. Well, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, she's having more peaceful dreams. Yeah, hopefully, she didn't. She's just chasing a bunny or something. It was funny because a friend of mine said that he was having like terrible dreams the past week or so. Oh. And I was like, you know, I'm just happy that I haven't had any yet with studying Unit 731 for the past week. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, once again, this was a listener chosen episode. So if you guys want to get in on putting in topic suggestions, uh, you can join our Patreon. It's $5 a month, 60 bucks a year. Not that much. Price of an Xbox game. Uh, if you want to look at it like that. But yeah, go to gems of, or patreon.com slash gems of history podcast. You can sign up there and you'll get ad free episodes, early access, and you can come hang out and do the listener polls and stuff with us. So. And other ways that you can connect with us is through our various social medias. So you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and myself at whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, 
and Facebook at Gems of History Podcast. The Facebook channel in particular in particular is a discussion group. So if you have any thoughts about the episode that we did today or any episode, feel free to chime into there and we can have an open discussion. It's a great way to interact with our listeners. Absolutely. So next week, going to be happier, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> I, we're we're going to, I'll reveal that we're just going to do one of our short story episodes because it yeah. we need a little breather after this. Yeah, we need a little breather. So we're going to get some more fun. Probably, well, maybe we'll get an update about the uh, bathtub. Yeah. Thief. Oh, speaking of that, that uh, in that news story episode we talked about where you mentioned that they found uh what's her face's wife carol baskin's or carol baskin's oh, husband yeah yeah i looked into that like the week that we did that episode uh-huh she just said that they found him and then like oh gave them a single document that could have easily just been typed by her and said yeah he's in costa rica here's the thing that the national or uh the homeland security sent me about it and there's like okay and all of these and news agents, with it. <laughs> all the news agencies were like, they found him. And then one of them was like, wait, 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 wait. No, they didn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she just said they did. <laughs> in today's media, there is no double checking, yes. <laughs> especially with this like Tiger King Netflix documentary. Oh, uh, good times. Good times. Do you think people still watch that documentary just in their free time? Like it's been three. Oh, yeah. It's been three years yeah. since COVID started. Yeah, dude. It's crazy. I mean, we've been doing this for a majority of that. Good for us. We persevere. Yes, sir. You know what you should do, guys? You should persevere through this week so you can get to the weekend and have a great weekend. All right? That's what I want you to do. Yeah. Have a better weekend than listening to this sad episode of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everyone. We love you. Stay polished.